0: Hi guys, welcome back to Infinite Possibilities, the podcast where we explore the lives of amazing people, their choices, challenges, and opportunities. And today I have a very special guest, Jonathan. Hello.
1: Good morning, or good afternoon, I should say. How are you?
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Jonathan, what is your one minute intro? What do you do?
1: I'm currently a partner with KPMG based here in Brisbane. Um, I uh, lead oil and gas for us globally and spend most of my time in the energy space. I'm the father of the three beautiful girls and married Hi. to my beautiful wife, Anne. So, um, yeah, it's a full yeah. life, I can say, both at <laughs> work and at home.
0: Yeah, and Jonathan has been at KPMG since two thousand and nine. So we're Hard gonna to we're gonna see what has kept in here. But first things first, tell us about your last name. It's awesome. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> there was a, a story floating around which is perpetuated by my parents, which said that members of the French aristocracy during the French Revolution adopted bird names as a condition as a means of recognition in England. I've never seen any re- any evidence of that and I've never seen any of the wealth that allegedly might have flowed from it. So um, I think it's just a bog standard name that was picked up in the in the middle of uh, the uk i have a long i'm a, from a long line of peasants as my father tells me so i and no no, real, no uh, real connection with royalty in any way shape or form much as the story might uh, deny yeah. that. Oh,
0: disappointing
1: <laughs> it was
0: yeah so jonathan tell me where were you born and what kind of childhood did you have growing up
1: Sure, born in the UK, my um, in a town called Little Wigborough, which has only claimed to fame, was that a zeppelin landed on the church in 1915. I was born at home How in a house it? at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> I think my father's sole contribution was to ask, he was boiling potatoes at the time, where the salt was for the potatoes As my mother was mid-labor, but other than that he, <laughs> he played a fairly small role in that. Um, I, I was a pretty active kid, you can imagine, with a father who's a very physical you know man he was um, a farmer by background and very you know athletic at sports that translated through to me and i spent most of my childhood outside growing up in the country um, my parents paid 10 pounds moved to australia in the in the mid 60s and we moved to country western australia and so that was a perfect upbringing for a kid that liked the outdoors and i spent all my time out and it's probably a bit past to so say these days um, you know, out sort of chasing rabbits and kangaroos <laughs> and, and emus and all that sort of stuff that you'd you'd kind of expect. Um, but I grew up outdoors, which sort of that'll play through as a theme uh, later in the life. You know, later in my life as I join the navy and for what I do now. Yeah, that's cool.
0: And did you have siblings growing
1: up? Yeah, I got a sister, Sarah, 16 months younger, which oh, I never months? thought was okay. an advantage until we got to high school and I worked out that. Girls mature at faster rates than boys, and so her friends automatically became my girlfriends. but not, not automatically, but um, certainly. Um, That's so it, Yeah, it was. It was better than any of the social media we got today. It was. Uh, yeah, my sister. My sister would say, "What girl do you like?" and she'd bring her home. So it was. It was. It was, it was lovely. Yeah. Um, and similarly, she expected the same of my of my friends. So it was yeah. this symbiotic relationship. Um, we're still very close. In fact, we speak probably every other day. She's in Western Australia. Oh. Uh, works in the West Australian Government and we've had a beautiful relationship because the family came out from, uh, from the UK, my sister was, um, my mum was eight months pregnant with my sister, um, we were a self-contained little unit so the family unit was only four um, in, in Australia. It's now obviously extended with marriages and children and all that sort of stuff and so we remain really close.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And we all want to know. So, your
1: current wife, was that introduced by your sister? No, 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 yeah, no, no, no. And my wife would hate you saying current wife. She'll kill me if I, oh, I get broadcast. So, so, yeah. <laughs> your wife. Yeah, yeah, my wife. Um, yeah, no, my long suffering wife, Anne. Um, <laughs> no, no, she, uh, I, I actually managed to find her myself, believe it or not. Wow, so.
0: congratulations. <laughs> yeah there a cute love story
1: that you might want to share oh you just a, it's in? a great love story no it's a, just a you know love story of meeting at work and um and finding you know common ground over time and uh you know falling in love and and then I waited 10 years to get married so ah. there, there, there might be a there might be a she might not see that as cute but um you know it's it's uh, you know you know, very much in love and I suppose I'd say as much love today as we were when we first met. It's just a beautiful relationship and wow. one that I'm very happy with and I think is, you know, something that everyone should aspire to. So I feel very lucky.
0: Damn, you look like you got your life sorted. Well, yeah,
1: not all of it, but uh, Well, yeah. we're
0: going to dig into that marriage component. Tips for a great marriage later. <laughs> so, yeah, so you love the outdoors. And so when you were a kid and you were growing up and thinking about the future, what was kind of floating through your mind? Did you want to be like a sports superstar no i never
1: had i never had aspirations for that um because i I realized that while i was good at sport i was never that good Um, (laughs) i was your usual policeman fireman but then probably in my around 10 or 11 i decided i wanted to join the navy you know i just love i love warships i love the concept of of firefighting, <laughs> might as it might seem, probably because I was fighting with my sister. Um, but but I, I think that that's where it started and, and a passion for the water um, in particular transcended into something I wanted to do on in or, you know, on and in or under it at some point in my life and that's what ultimately ended up working out that way. So um, being active and outdoors meant that I probably wasn't good sitting down and doing much reading, although I did read from time to time and the books I read, funnily enough, were you know, with a classic sort of war story book. So mm. I kind of was shaped from an early age um, and then gradually began to realise it was either that or marine biology. And when I realised that it was pretty difficult to get into marine biology, you certainly were to get in with the grades I had. That um, <laughs> it was, um, you know, it was, the Navy was a great option. So it was either the Merchant Navy or the Royal Australian Navy and, and I was lucky enough to get into the Royal Australian Navy. So yeah. that's where, you know, that's where life began post-school.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And tell me more about school. So, didn't get good grades? Was it
1: just uh, the pool did, of the outdoors? No, I did for I did for the first few years, and <laughs> and that was enough to um, you know get me to what I wanted to do. But yeah. in the in the last sort of two years of school, I just found it boring and frustrating, yeah. and I wanted to be out doing things, not sitting in a classroom. And so, you know, I kind of think um, I I kind of struggled. But once I got purpose in that last year, which was I had a pathway into the navy, that changed my attitude and. Mm attitude was huge for me in terms of motivation and that's what then you know got me into the Navy and I never looked back from there. So I had probably a year and a half where I was a bit lost wondering what I was gonna do. Yeah. And it was the power of a conversation from a family friend that gave me some options in life that I didn't do, year, if I didn't do year 12, what my life might hold for me that meant that, um, and, and the lack of options I might have. Um, that really sort of gave me the, I guess, the impetus to study and then, you know, do enough to get into the Navy. And then once I was there, I was doing something I really enjoyed and I found purpose and meaning in and, and that kind of kept me going um, and propelled me forward, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. And what were your most hated subjects at school and your <laughs>
1: favourite? Uh, I was good at English, I was good at history, um, I was good at economics, I was OK at maths, I was OK at chemistry, I was OK at physics. Um, but I just didn't put time and effort into them. I Subsequently, my MBA worked out it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this is like 20 years later. But they just didn't interest me at the time. Um, you know, I liked writing and I liked, um, I liked thinking and I liked the relationship between the analytical, if it was in economics, I loved the relationship between the numbers and their meaning. And, um, and so whilst I didn't enjoy maths at the time, I think I do now. I enjoy it far yeah. more now than I did back then, uh, which is kind of ironic.
0: Yeah, um, that's funny.
1: About where I've ended up. Yeah. I don't think if he said to 17-year-old Jonathan, you'd be working at KPMG doing what I'm doing, I don't think he would have known what KPMG was. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think he would have, you know, aspired to that. That wouldn't have been what I aspired to, but yeah. anyway, I'm here now. Wow. Is it the dream,
0: working at KPMG?
1: Oh, I think of the, when you look at the things that matter in life, I think it's um, doing challenging work, working with fantastic people, working with great, great clients, and they have obviously fit into that people mix. Um, and having a great culture. And I think the one thing people tend to undervalue, they'll sometimes pursue financial return without understanding that the cultural element of where you is really critical. I, I love working here. I love the people I work with and for. Um, I find it a supportive, creative environment and one that I have nothing but a positive experience of. So yeah, I found, I found what works for me. Not for everyone, but it works for me.
0: Yeah, that's cool. And then going back to the Navy, so at that time when you decided you wanted to go to the Navy, were your parents supportive? Did they have, like, other <laughs> ideas of what they wanted their little boy to be?
1: No, no, no. <laughs> My parents said, we, as long as you're happy. I had a, I had a great childhood. My parents oh, were so fantastic chill. parents. They said, we don't care what you do as long as you're happy. Um, they were also spending probably two or $300 a week in food um, <laughs> on sustaining a 17-year-old that had a voracious appetite that could wow. eat a loaf of bread in a sitting. So wow. when I went to the Navy, they were happy that the federal government was taking on responsibility <laughs> for, for feeding me. I think they were happy about that. Um, but I think they saw me change. They saw me become someone that quickly gravitated to responsibility. And when I enjoyed something, how well I could do at it and the yeah. kind of the daisical approach or the malaise I'd shown to a couple of, maybe my last, not my last twelve last six months, but certainly the 18 months prior to that, I think they were worried about what I'd do. Um, but that worry dissipated when they saw that I had that, that I'd found something I really enjoyed doing that gave me that mix of, you know, physical and, and mental challenge. And that's what the Navy absolutely was. Uh, and, and again, I met a great bunch of people and a lot of them are still friends to this day, you know, 40 whatever years later. Um, 41 years later, these guys are still friends, still mates. Um, yeah. We still see each other, um, we still, you know, celebrate things together. So, no, it's been fantastic. The Navy was a great place for me to start. gave me discipline, um, gave me a sense of, as I said earlier, a sense of purpose. So I kind of, I loved it and I did well at it, you know, that's, yeah. why, that's why I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, and tell me about the expectations versus reality. When you like were thinking about the navy and when you joined it, was it was it every boy's little dream? No, it was horrible. It was horrible for the first. <laughs> oh, I hated
1: the first eight months. Having said, I enjoyed my career. I absolutely did. And um, but you know, the first eight weeks were you had to you know iron your own clothes, wash your own clothes, wow. clean your own cabin or your your own room, make sure it was tidy, get it inspected every night, do yeah. cleaning stations where you had to clean someone else's bathroom not your own. Um, um, you know, it, it was it was all the training mum hadn't given me, <laughs> you know, all the things I wish she taught me, although she did give me a rapid course in ironing, which has lasted me, you know, 40 years. But um, yeah. it was just incredible. It was such a culture shock to me moving into an environment where there were rules and you actually had to live by them. Um, yeah and but it shaped me it kind of gave me a i don't know a set of guidelines to stay within and once you worked out the rules you worked out you didn't get punished um and punishments can be pretty tough so you know it it was running around the oval with a rifle above your head It, it, it could be you know um pulling your entire entire everything that ever issued you out and laying that out perfectly on your bed which would take 24 hours to do um, you know, they, they give you extra cleaning duties, all sorts of stuff that might sound trivial today, but they, they certainly, you know, they were painful in their different ways. But in that, they kind of taught you to operate in an environment where you needed to be considerate of others, be part of a team and work in in, working within that team and ultimately adjust the role you play in the team depending on who's in it. So a lot of the things that kind of sat with me subsequently through as I evolved my career, but as I moved into the corporate world, were unknowingly shaped in in that first few years in the navy so that kind of gave me a i don't know um, an ability to communicate an ability to lead i was leading at a young age uh, leading a group of 35 first years when i was a second year um, my leadership styles evolved over time those that know me well will, will um will know that and <laughs> so the lights have just gone out which <laughs> may be obvious to you um, yeah. Maybe sitting still for too long, but that's okay. <laughs> Maybe this would be a key part of the podcast.
0: Yeah, and tell me up. sort of what was kind of your daily routine. Was it the 5 a.m. wake up? Yeah, yeah, so
1: true? 5 a.m. wake-up, and no matter what the time of year, you did physical training, so that was that always ended with a swim across what we called the boat harbour, which in the middle of winter would have been about minus two. Um, and then, you know, then you'd be back up, um, have a shower, get changed, and obviously you might have to wait for a shower if everyone had it. <laughs> Uh, then it was, um, you, know, uh, you know, you'd have to, if you were smart, you'd iron your uniform the day before, but if you weren't smart, then you are waiting in line for an iron. Um, and then you'd go and have breakfast and then you'd do um, come back. Get ready for your day, and your day was academics, but you'd start out with typically some sort of marching or parade training sort of stuff. Then you'd be into academics for a day. Um, my favourite part of the day was probably morning tea, where uh, <laughs> at 17 I was able to eat three strawberry sausage rolls, a strawberry thick shake, and still be about this thin. If I looked at those now, I'd be about this big. so, um, so I exercise much. so much. And then each, each day would kind of finish with some, sort of, some form of sport, which I loved. Yeah. It was rugby, cricket, tennis, whatever it was. Uh, often team based as well, and then you'd get into dinner. You'd then have to do cleaning stations, and then and then study, um, and then just do it all over again. Rinse, rinse and repeat, as they say. So, yeah, it was a you know it was certainly a lot of um, time spent. Um, you were, they just kept you active. They knew teenage boys need to be kept active, and you didn't get much time to sit and think, which is probably pretty healthy back then.
0: Yeah, and did you get weekends off
1: at that time? Not for the first six weeks and then, and then you gradually got released, but bear in mind you're in Jarvis Bay which is about 180 kilometres south of Sydney. The closest town's probably Huskisson, Vincentia or Nowra. Uh, the closest city's probably Wollongong and then Sydney. Um, you needed transport for all that stuff, so yeah. if you had a car, great, if you didn't you had to hang around the base, so yeah. you became pretty um, clever at getting off base, working out ways to get off base so you didn't have to stay there over the weekend. <laughs>
0: lovely and how was how was all that physical stuff for you growing up really active was that a
1: piece of cake or yeah i've always yeah i mean i'm, I'm lucky i'm sort of you know relatively well coordinated and as i progressed in my career and got into clearance diving it, that became critical having that having all that physical base was critical for then training to become a clearance diver so i once I finished the naval college, I decided I wanted to be a seaman officer, which is to drive and navigate ships. I did that. I did all the training for that, and then um, and then you know went a number of deployments up into Southeast Asia. I got a, I was on exchange with the US Navy in '85, and as part of the Midway Carrier Battle Group, and so I was on a guided missile destroyer, and um, the captain asked me if i ever driven a ship, and I boldly said I had, which was kind of sort of true. And then he asked me to put it up alongside the carrier at sea, 80, <laughs> 80 feet off, or sorry, 80 yards, 80 feet, no, 80 feet it was, 80 feet off the side of the carrier, and I had to admit that I hadn't kind of done that before. Yeah. <laughs> so he kind of guided me through that. So I had those sorts of experiences going up into from Fremantle up into Japan through the Philippines with the US Navy. Um, but I kind of, there's always something I navigated um, different ships, but I'd always thought that, Um, I wanted to be a diver, Um, I'd done diving at school and and then I spent my time um, training to become a clearance diver in Sydney, Um, got on the first course in 89 um, and five weeks in had a major accident where we were hit by a car while we were training, we were running down to Avalon Beach to play touch football with five and a half kilo medicine balls and a car hit us from behind. Um, 300 metres before we got hit, I was in the place of the guy behind me. Um, he went up the bonnet through the windscreen and ultimately was killed. And um, and I, he stopped me going any further up, so I did a whole lot of damage, tore all the skin off my back, and ripped my head open, and wow. and tore both anterior cruciate ligaments in my knees, and did all sorts of damage. And so um, he died on the um, the bed in emergency beside me. Um, and um, which was absolutely tragic, and you know that, that lives with me. But like many moments in your life, resilience is built off a range of experiences. And you know, I often reflect on that day and that time, and you know what had led me to hand my position to him and take or take his position and put him into that middle position. And it was just generosity of spirit. You know, I didn't. He wasn't a good runner. I was a better runner than he was. So that's why we swapped places, and I carried the ball. Um, so, four operations, 70 days off work, and two years later I went back on course, and um, and it was a nine-month course, the hardest physical course the Navy offers, um, a yeah. lot of diving, a lot of explosive ordnance disposal, a lot of long hours, and when it was cold and you were wet and tired and thinking, why the hell am I here? Yeah. I knew exactly why I was there, I was there not just for me, but his, him and his memory, and that propelled me through and i you know again showing the power of motivation topped that course for both of us because it wasn't just about it wasn't just about me it was about about his memory that i was looking to preserve and and um you know i carried i carried that with me that carried him and his memory with me through the course um and you know, i think again you know think about shaping things in life it kind of that experience, that that challenge, and it was a huge challenge to come back from, you know, doing that, having had the damage done to my body, it was done by being hit by a car. Um, It just made me more determined and um, I wasn't gonna let things stand in my way. And I had plenty of times when we were on runs and my knees would hurt and, you know, because they'd just been freshly um, reconstructed, Um, but I didn't let it stop me. Um, And again, you know, the power of teams, the ability to, work as part of a team, the ability to be supported when you need it and, you know, mates knew I was in pain and would help me, drag me along or, you know, of course end up beating them but no, because I'm competitive but <laughs> <laughs> no, I was pretty well behaved. So, so um, yeah, it's just one of those experiences and I think, um, you know, you can look at I think most of those things in life either as a, um, as a, as a, a threat In a challenge, or as a you know something you learn from. That's what I tried to do. Is you try and get those lights back on. (laughs)
0: Yeah. No. I think they're out. So I think we're just going to stay here and keep talking in the dark. Sure.
1: (laughs) I think people see my face, and that's enough. Uh, Some (laughs) people would say that's well and truly enough.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, and in the beginning, how did you sort of deal with the grief and that guilt? What was that sort of beginning
1: process? Uh, Support support services. Back then, you know, this is uh, 9.89, not great. Um, Yeah. And, you know, the problem, you had to do it yourself. And so, you know, certainly it was the support of my friends, um, the support of my family, you know, the opportunity to talk. I've always been someone that can talk about things. And so I was happy to talk about how I was feeling and what was affecting me. And the level of support I got from um, individuals uh, during that time they put me back in a clearance diving team and I wasn't qualified to recover so I had something to sort of continue to aspire to even though that that'd been the first time it's ever been done in that way um, I was just very lucky and and I was just well supported I have to I can't say enough for the people that stood up around me who knew Sean or who, knew, who were friends of mine and so my mechanism wasn't what you might have today which was you know EAP or yeah any of those sorts of providers, they were far and few between back then. It was much more the support of friends and family. Uh, and there were a huge amount of people that stepped up in that regard and checked in on me and made sure I was okay. Yeah. Um, I'll never forget that. Um, so no, no, I, I, and you know, I guess you, you can either become, I don't know, some people why differently, but you can either be a victim of all of that and make that an excuse as to why you don't do things, or in my yeah. case, a motivator as to why you do do things. And, you know, now I think of when I mountain bike, for instance, um, my appetite for risk is a lot higher. I know that scares that scares everyone. Yeah, it scares everyone a lot. But I just think about, you know, living my life and enjoying it as much as I can, because you never know when it's going to, you're not going to have the choice anymore. So I try and enjoy my life. I think it's important, you know, every day, not every day, because there it can be, but, you know. Yeah, you I,
0: seem more like a YOLO guy, doing uh, crazy stuff.
1: <laughs> I've jumped out of them. planes, I've dived with sharks recent great white sharks in South Australia recently. Uh, I've worked with explosives, um, <laughs> I've dived in caves, all sorts of stuff. I mean, everyone's got different versions of adrenaline and some people are higher than mine, but, yeah. you know, I've driven V8 supercars of, you know, all that sort of stuff that go you're an adrenaline junkie i probably do like the adrenaline but i like the challenge as well i think that's part of what motivates me yeah
0: that's cool and you stuck you stuck around in the navy for around 17
1: years yeah it was 19 years and three months in the end so kind of LinkedIn's
0: not up to date yeah (laughs) it kind of is because i I
1: had an overlap so effectively i finished uh, i was still in the navy on reserve basically still in the navy when i joined um i joined um uh, deloitte in 2001, I didn't actually leave, formally leave the Navy because oh. I was on long service leave until 2002 or wow. midway through 2002, so that's kind of just adds a bit to your time. Yeah, um, yeah and so I, I did an MBA. I thought that was the best way to understand this corporate world. I couldn't see myself going any further in the Navy. I'd, I'd done what I'd been there to do, and f- quite frankly, the, the next few jobs I was doing would be mostly administrative. And funnily enough, for a guy that joined oh. the Navy, I actually didn't enjoy being at sea. I found that a bit boring or well, the ships moved at 12 or 15 knots which is like 25 kilometers an hour and that's that's a long way it's a long way to slow pace if you're going to southeast asia so that just didn't excite me anymore so you know i kind of um uh, i decided to go into an mba and it was again a great choice so I, Got the navy. To, I, I hopeful no one's recording this um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to pay for me to go to the best uh, school at the time in Australia, which is the Australian Graduate School of Management. I did it there and met again a wonderful group of people who yeah. ultimately helped me get into Deloitte. You know, when I got into my final year, they said we like you know like the way you think and work and come and work in you know an organisation like Deloitte. So that's what I did. Um, I went there and I joined as a 35 year old senior consultant. Um, yeah. And uh, and my first job was at OneTel, which was um, a telecommunications provider funded partly by Jody Rich. Sorry, Jody Rich provided much funding. It was funded by um, the Packers and the Murdochs and. It was in its sort of death throes when we got there, and um, it was an unbelievable consulting experience. Um, when the lift doors open and Jamie Packer's standing there in front of you with a grin, not a grin on his face, with a you know look of death on his face, because Dad's wondering how he's you know, what he's done with his five hundred million dollar investment. You didn't get into the lift with James Packer; you let him go up to level twenty eight. Um, so I learned a lot through consulting. I got into um, again. I was recruited by a really eccentric Englishman. My recruiting interview was two hours long, wow. 30 minutes of that was talking about Deloitte and an hour and a half about the Navy. He was fascinated yeah. about my Navy background, so he recruited me, and he was my coach and mentor for a long time, and I think, you know, that for me was the first time I'd been exposed to someone who cared that much about your career, and I think for me that's kind of stayed with me as um, as I've started to, you know, as I've been in, at least in KPMG, and looking at seeing the grads come through and the juniors and being a pdm and all those sorts of things a performance development manager for people it's been incredibly important to me is the power of supporting people through their careers Um, as you either mentor them coach them guide them or help manage their performance
0: yeah that's awesome it's amazing how you just you know did your navy career and then just decided enough was enough and then jumped
1: Three sixteen to a completely different. Yeah, it was. It, it absolutely was, and I wasn't. You know, I thought the MBA would give me this um, experience set, would enable me to handle it. It certainly gave me an understanding. It uh, helped me to decode the corporate environment, for want of a better word. But it certainly didn't prepare me for consulting, and I, <laughs> I, I kind of. Some bits came intuitively, like the communications, the leadership, the you know ability to talk to people and work out and problem solve. Because yeah. I did explosive ordnance disposal in the navy as well, so I had to render safe unexploded ordnance, you know, um, missiles, rockets, torpedoes, all that sort of stuff. Um, mostly in training, but but that gave you a great sort of problem solving mindset, and I didn't appreciate that that combined with all the leadership I'd had since I was sort of seventeen combined with the need to communicate both well in writing, because I always liked English, and then verbally, you know, I didn't realise how much of that would be relevant to consulting, and kind of it was, but the bit I was missing was experience. (laughs) 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 So, you know, I kind of got into the IT part of consulting to start with, and that's what we were doing at OneTel, and a range of other clients, and and, um, I was, yeah, I kind of felt like I was faking it for the first little while because I really didn't understand a lot of what I was doing but I kind of just worked it out and stumbled through and they thought I must have been doing a reasonable job because I got promoted from senior con to director in four years. Um, when wow. I was at Deloitte, uh <laughs> oh, luck, timing, um, you know, some great colleagues. You know, I've always think in consulting you're successful because of the people you work for and with and I was lucky enough to have a really, really good, apart from James Griffin who was my... First coach and mentor, I have Warren Green, who was an ex-professional tennis player, who absolutely was a South African, is a South African. Um, and he, he really helped me see consulting for what it was, was very patient and sort of add some of the... The Polish, and it was with huge regret that I left the organisation, but when you get an offer from Suncorp, which sort of doubles slash triples your pay... Oh, yeah. ..and it's based in Brisbane, kind of... I go back on what I said earlier, it's not all about culture. Um, There's a a threshold to what you get, you know, about the pay pay part of that. Um, I'm still good friends with Warren to this day, and we still... could go back, I guess. Yeah, well, he's not at Deloitte anymore. In fact, I enticed him across to KPMG. In fact, um, I got James Griffin. James, I always used to joke with James. He gave me one job, and I gave him his next three. Um, (laughs) That seems fair. (laughs) It was was a fair exchange for a start.
0: Yeah, Um, and I want to go back a little bit more to that transition from the navy to Deloitte. Like, how hard is it to start over again? Like, was did it require a lot of courage to, you know, be at like the top of the navy and then just become a senior con? Yeah, ignorance is
1: bliss, because, you know, I think um, I certainly didn't really know what to expect. Uh, I kind of had a view based on what people had told me, but it was very different from what I expected. I'd gone from having an office overlooking the water, a whole bunch of assets. I had 70 people working for me um, to I didn't have an allocated desk. I'd never responsibilities. I had to report to everyone else. And I kind of, it reminded me of being a midshipman and we always used to say as a midshipman it was all care, no responsibility. And being a senior con kind of felt like that as well. Um, although I don't think my employer at Deloitte would enjoy me saying that. <laughs> um, but, but it also gave you latitude to learn. And the beauty yeah. of joining as a senior con at that age was that I kind of, people didn't expect you to know everything and they were happy to share their thinking yeah. ideas. If I joined more senior, it might've been a bit more difficult. And they were paying me a lot more than I was paid in the Navy anyway. So really? yeah, Ooh. the title was kind of, you know, um, the title was one thing, but the pay was higher. So, you know, again, I, I keep saying it's about culture and I keep talking about pay, but, but, <laughs> but I think, I think the reality was that I was up for a new adventure and a new challenge. And it certainly was that like, it was, yeah, okay, it wasn't jumping out of planes and it wasn't diving on different gases and it wasn't trying to render safe unexploded ordnance, which is all yeah. exciting and challenging. <laughs> but it was trying to work out you know what the right system was or what the IT, right it governance model was or and that was a problem and um you know i think for me i just loved i've always loved solving problems and consulting is one big procession of problems um, with clients so that transition i didn't find too hard I, I found that um i could stay connected to my navy friends i could stay you know and i, I built a new friend group um and one that was really tight because we had to solve problems together and it was a it was a great culture at deloitte the is in a small part of the consulting business and it was it was really really good fun very social um very challenging work great people to learn from very strong partners um, who knew a lot and i learned a lot about the consulting business and james Griffin, God love him, I only worked out after the fact that he probably had some alcohol issues because we go to Jackson's on George every day at four o'clock to have a pint, and um, <laughs> and we would talk about consulting. I think it was only one pint, but I certainly couldn't do more than that. And he'd teach me the art of consulting, um, you know, from from you know from a table at Jackson's on George, which was just unbelievably generous of him to do that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm.
0: Yeah, and how did you sort of transition from being super, super active in the Army to a more
1: sedentary kind of job? Yeah, I, I exercised every day. So when I don't think I'd, I'd been fit, but I'd sort of spent, I'd had two or three months to get ready. I, I ran every day. <laughs> um, and actually over time I found that's probably been, you know, consistency of exercise has been a, a challenge, you know, particularly as work stress increases, and I know you'll yeah. come to that as a topic. It's absolutely essential and not not that I'm at the peak of my game now but I'm certainly fit and I think that that fitness certainly helps give you the energy to do what we do. um, the other challenge is when you're 17 and you're going to eat a loaf of bread in one go, you've kind of <laughs> got to change that mindset over time. Parts of that have changed, but I'm not sure the entire mindset has. If it's a sausage roll put in front of me, I could probably knock off a dozen of those pretty quickly. Wow, so, not that I try. I'm very yeah. well behaved. Discipline's still there in some way, shape or form, I like to think, although not yeah, everyone would agree we'll with that. we yeah. <laughs> You don't have any come out now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then tell me more about what was kind of your job with tech at Deloitte? Were you doing
1: tech risk? Were you doing very technical implementation? Uh, yeah, work? it was mainly, uh, it was sort of more um, s- uh, system selection. Um, it was, um, I did um, implementation as well. So I worked at 80 months for Australian Hearing, project managing the design, development and an implementation of one of the, the ERP solutions. It was a bespoke Oracle solution that we developed or... Red Rock developed at the time and again the project manager for Red Rock was a South African I learned so much about project management from him what he didn't know about project management wasn't worth knowing and so I guess that's the other thing I'd say is I've never been too arrogant to learn from others you know I've always if someone knows if I don't know something and someone else does I've never been precious about that if there's something I can learn from them and and Clinton uh, Clifton Vincent was his name he was just the perfect project manager in terms of his technical knowledge and of that discipline and i called myself a project manager but he, he schooled me in 18 months on what it was to be really a project manager and and i think you know that certainly you know in in that's where i spent most of my time and then we had a restructure when i got back from that um that restructure basically they said well you know, we'd like you to come into financial services, we're gonna put you in a sector role. And I said, well, that's great. The guy who recruited me to Deloitte had done that. And I said to him, you know, all I know about, you know, financial services is I've got a credit card, a mortgage, a bank account, yeah. and insurance, and I think I've got some super somewhere. <laughs> um, but he said, that's not what we want. What we want is your ability to build relationships with people, to quickly understand um, the environment, but more importantly, to help them solve problems. and. And that's what, you know, Warren Green and I did at, you know, we built the, finance, the first parts of the financial services practice as it related to the Commonwealth Bank account at, at, um, at, at Deloitte. And what a wild ride that was. You know, I remember walking up George Street in Sydney thinking we're going to meet with, the, you know, the head of private bank. <laughs> I don't know what private banking is. Um, you know, I'd done a, so, so kind of I learnt um, the art of a good question. Because the less statements you make as a consultant and the more questions you ask, the more inquisitive you are. And if I think about where I learnt that, it was from my explosive ordinance disposal time when I had to work out what problem I was dealing with, what sort of ordinance was it. I was was briefing, you know, I was being briefed by someone. I had to ask a range of logical questions to draw out the most information possible. And so learning the art of, you know, Michael Hiller says that I ask, you know, he's the chairman of KPMG in Queensland, I always ask a curious question and that's because... I think, you know, the, the fewer statements you can make and when you're not armed with a lot of knowledge about financial services, yeah. <laughs> you learn to ask some pretty good questions pretty quickly. You yeah. may not understand all the answers, but um, we worked them out over time. And yeah. you know, I'm pleased to say Warren, you know, to his credit went on to become the head of financial services as a sector for Deloitte. And I was so that was a huge moment for both of us. I, hadn't, I didn't stay long, but that financial services then propelled me into my next role at, um, at Suncorp where I was a general manager there and they looked at my financial services background and said, wow, you've been in financial services running the Commonwealth Bank account, <laughs> which, which is true, but I'd only done it yeah. for like 12 months. But anyway, that didn't matter. Um, and you were a project manager. is like, yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I got that from Clifton Vincent, you know, when I was doing the work at Australian Hearing. So, you know, I don't want to be glib about those experiences, but I've l- learned a lot over time by observing people, uh, by asking questions for things I don't know and yeah. and by... Trying to understand the problem the client's trying to solve, yeah, and that kind of comes together beautifully. That's what consulting is. Yeah,
0: and then tell me about your next role. So why leave SunCorp?
1: Um, I got made redundant from SunCorp. So we acquired Prometer, um and effectively what that meant was um, you know the bringing mashing of two organisations together. I likened it turning a twenty billion dollar market cap organisation into a ten billion dollar one. So. You know, in some respects it was a bit of a train smash in terms of value <laughs> achieved, but um, I, I'm not, and I think that's just the reality of M&A at times. Yeah, um, yeah and I, I was made redundant. Um, you know, the division I was running, they didn't think they needed a corporate projects division and it would be done within each of the lines of business. And so I was propelled into the, into the job market. Um, I quickly, I had a range of options. And one was to go and work at NAB in the same sort of role but you'll see from my history i don't mind stepping off a cliff and so the first cliff i stepped off was stepping out of the navy into consulting the second cliff was consulting into and you would say well maybe it's not so much of a cliff but to be the gm of corporate projects at suncorp running a portfolio of 300 million dollars worth of projects or it projects which these days isn't big but back then that would have been about 100 projects um meant that in essence um you know it was a bit of a cliff for me and the third cliff is to jump from corporate into it startup land And I don't know if you'd call RMSS a start-up, but it was certainly early stage and the objective was to effectively grow the business and make it attractive enough for a VC investor to come in. And I'm pleased to say that's exactly what happened, you know, was we got a a venture capital investor on board and that injection of capital, you know, should have propelled that organisation to greatness. But again, and I would say that, you know, the, the, the traits that make you successful are culture, you know, getting the right culture, having the right skill set, um, having the right people around you and the right capability um, and the right leadership. And, you know, I'd say not, not much of that existed at RMSS. And, you know, for me, it wasn't an environment I thrived in. It wasn't an environment that I could see was going to be successful. And, you know, again, I left that environment pretty quickly after like 12 months. Um, And then I was out in the market for a while um, because it was the GFC. And um, which wasn't a great time to come into market. And again, it's a test of resilience. You know, how did I approach being unemployed? Well, I exercised, I had a routine. I exercised every day. I read the papers every day. I organised my week with a set of meetings. And I would come in and I'd meet people and would either be for one or two purposes. They'll either give me information or they're going to give me a job. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so end ended up with a pile of business cards and a lot of connections and opportunities. And at the start of that process, KPMG had kind of said, yeah, listen, we're interested, but we don't have a position for you. And then thankfully, Steph Bradley, who some people may know, um, got married and her husband got a job in Melbourne. She was a director here. She went to Melbourne and Steph created the opportunity for me to I come think. in in September um and uh and I joined here thirty first of August, I think it was two thousand and
0: nine wow, that's your work anniversary yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah, and tell me more about that unemployment period was it a very long time was it I was i about um
1: no, it wasn't it was um probably what would it have been no, it would have been about eight months all up yeah um but, but I, I was always convinced I was going to get something. So um, there was
0: no that, like, depression? No, 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 no,
1: no, not at all. I had a game plan. I knew, yeah. I, knew I had a range of skills. It's not, not that I've got ego, but I've, yeah. got, I've got enough self-confidence to know that I'm of value somewhere. Yeah. And so rather than filling my time with, yeah. you know, alcohol and <laughs> feeling bad about myself, I filled it with <laughs> exercise and, you know, doing things I wanted to do. I, I went and did Hamilton Island Race Week. Um, yeah. I did a whole bunch of stuff. Um, not, not that I was trying to spend a lot of money. I just had a, I know, a desire to, I enjoyed that eight months. Like if you said to me, yeah. was it a hard time? Yeah, okay, so I didn't get a job for eight months. But it was probably more that I, I um, got time to, you know, reconnect with my family and spend time doing the physical pursuits I enjoyed. Yeah. Which is good fun.
0: Wow. And tell me, how did you sort of find your niche in, like, oil and gas?
1: Um, yeah good question because i don 't have a background in oil and gas yeah, i mean other I than i 've driven petrol based cars my whole life um, yeah. and worked on farms but i think um, it, 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 it's it started out probably in 2010 when we got our first job it was a it 's a hugely mystifying area to me, very technically complex and yet simple problems sometimes in oil and gas and And I remember the West Australian team had done a lot of work um, in um, what they call cost allocation, so how you allocate corporate overheads to joint venture partners. Um, We had effectively um, won a piece of work at what was called Queensland Gas Corporation at the time, um, which is now owned by Shell. Um, And gradually I did more and more work in the space. And the reason I loved it goes back to what I talked about. It was a technically oriented environment. It was a complex business. It had complex problems, sometimes with very simple solutions, and we had to apply a range of thinking to how we solved each of those problems. And I'll never forget probably the thing that KPMG is best known for at Shell in Australia, and one of the things I'm proudest of, although until recently I think there's been one that's come close to topping it, was the use of simulation to help them prepare to operate the, you know, to operate their LNG plant, liquidified natural gas plant on Curtis Island. Well, we took a table similar to the one just by, just behind <laughs> the camera there and we said, let's simulate your entire asset on that tabletop. Wow. And we borrowed that from the military background, which the army guys unfortunately come up with, which was a Navy answer. But it was the army guys that come up with, and we simulated the entire asset on the tabletop. So we had baked bean tins for central processing plants, <laughs> we had ba- ex- barbecue hoses, the export pipeline. You know those uh, little fridge ice trays as the yeah. L&G plant. We had bells for wells. We had smaller baked bean tins as, um, <laughs> and and we came up with this idea of how we could get four teams um, in the QGC world to work out how they are going to operate this asset, how they are going to work together, communicate it with each other. but More importantly, deal with a range of scenarios, which we came up with 24 different scenarios, and so. The reason we made it look so stupid was because we were working with engineers and we knew that if we tried to replicate it, they'd find fault with it. But, you know, they they loved it and they loved it so much they wanted us to transport it and in transporting it, you know, it was heavy, baked bean tins are heavy, so we made the senior cons eat the baked beans, um, (laughs) the baked bean tins. Um, And we we transported that thing all over Queensland, showing them effectively running them through all these scenarios and we produced what was called a playbook and I'm pleased to say that was in 2014-15. Um, they actually just retired that version of the playbook or the playbook last year for the first time. So it was used all the way up until last year as their first response to a to an incident, um, not a not a crisis, but an incident. Um, and um, you know it was a it was a fabulous piece of teamwork, some real creativity. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just became more and more widely known in the oil and gas environment, and I was lucky to be appointed the national leader for oil and gas in 2017, which then, and by virtue of my exposure to that in the Shell account, um, I got exposed to our Shell, my Shell colleagues globally, who are a fabulous group of people who I have huge amounts of respect for. Um, and um, and then by virtue of that, um, you know, got onto the Shell account leadership team. So that gives me the pleasure of traveling to London once a year, oh, uh, amongst other things, it used to be to The Hague, but to London. And, and then, um, in September 21, I was appointed the global head of oil and gas. So, sort of, I guess you know. Uh, and again, I, my my um, my parents say I was born lucky. Um, <laughs> the, the the head of oil and gas at the time was a Russian named Anton Usov. Um, obviously, the Ukraine war had happened, and we weren't that that practice. You know, KPMG in Russia ceased to exist, and therefore his role ceased to exist. And you know, it was a process that I went through and ended up being in that role. So. Um, you know, I feel very fortunate again. Yeah. You know, luck, good fortune, and good support to have ended up in in that role. So, I love the industry, and now I've just picked up a new role, which will be announced um, more formatively on top of that role. So, not um, which okay. will be the head of energy and utilities in Australia. So, not only will we have the oil and gas kind of vertical at the global level, I'll have energy and utilities, which broadens out my energy perspectives around renewables and power yeah. and, and you know water utilities and. All, all that and, um, and all that sort of stuff. So it's gonna be, you know, along with gas. So wow. that's the Amen. next part of the journey is to try and um, broaden that out and understand it. And, bro- and that, my understanding of it, it feels like I'm back in financial services again, yeah. <laughs> as much yeah. as I know about oil and gas. And the more I realize about oil and gas, the more I, the more I um, understand, the less I realize I know. And yeah. so that means I've still got to have those good questions. I can't yeah. just walk around <laughs> without them. Yeah,
0: wow, what a career.
1: Yeah, it's not over yet, I hope. <laughs> no,
0: no, no. Used to be up and running for... <laughs> yeah, a little while yet.
1: Um, Long time. And, you know, you asked me the things that sustain me. So, yeah. you know, that's... I cycle. I'm a road rider and a mountain biker. And as I think I said earlier, my, my parents think I've got a mental impairment because <laughs> I mountain bike. Um, I had a few crashes. I've hit the odd tree. Um, I've cracked two ribs. Oh. Um, I just yeah, love it too wh- much. Why, why doesn't it stop you? Uh, it's so much fun. Um, Surely
0: you'd have, like, a bit of, you know ptsd
1: next time you do it no not at all yeah. and i think part of the part of the challenge is um part of the bit i love um about it is that you can't be anywhere else yeah. so in terms okay. of you know you talk about how you deal with stress yeah. part of that is by doing something that take, consumes your entire attention yeah. and mountain biking when you're going downhill and whether it's off a rock drop or a, you know across a, a log um or you know through a challenging part of a trail you can't be anywhere else You've got to be, where, where's the front wheel going, where's my weight, how much brake am I going to use, yeah. you know, what's coming up. Like, you, you, you can't be anywhere else and, and so it switches you completely from a business context to a, a physical, you know, sort of personal context. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Have you
0: ever wanted a more chill job? Yeah. Yeah, it just seems yeah. like just, you know, the better you get, the more work you get and...
1: Um, I've been, you know, I think if you looked at the themes from my life, a great one would be, you know, I just have been supported by really good people and I've worked out how to work really well with people that are really good at what they do. And, you know, I've been lucky enough that they see value in my contribution somewhere, whatever that might be. And so that, I, I find I tend to cover a lot of territory by virtue of the support I get from others. And... If I sit in any position, it's as a function of the help I've been given by key members of this team, the global team, the national team. I've, I've always felt that, and, yeah. and that's because I don't, you know, I don't have much time for politics. I'm not, an, and I'm, I'm not a political animal. I don't. I'm not very much interested in who's doing what to who. I'm interested <laughs> in getting a result or an answer. And yeah. you know, I think people see me for what, I'm a, what I am, which is I'm not a game player. I'm pretty straight up. If you want to have a. Conversation with me, I'll tell you what I think. Um, you know, and I'll do that respectfully, and obviously sometimes I can't tell you exactly what I think because, yeah. uh, you know, because and not because you're the CEO. Of, you know, Andrew and I have spoken. You know, I have spoken to Andrew candidly at times, but you know, and he's good enough to be receptive to that. But but I think um, you know, it's just about being um, um, genuine and honest, and I think people value that. And you know, I feel yeah, the job has its challenges, and I can't tell you I'm not tired. But my, if my Saturday morning starts with a mountain bike ride or if, a, if it starts with a road bike ride, um, I'm pretty happy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't work weekends. Um, okay, that's and good. I have to work nights because I'm an international business. Yeah. Um, so I'll have calls at night, but I don't work weekends. That's family time. Yeah. Wow. So we're nearly at the end of the
0: podcast. Just a few more quick questions. That's fine so one is if you won the lottery tomorrow what would you do differently about your life i'd stop
1: working <laughs> that's okay and
0: let's map out this dream
1: life what does it look like uh more mountain biking more road biking more holidays more um time with family and friends um the bit that you get measured on when you're going into into a box if that's what you want to do i'll be scattered at sea is <laughs> you know i love work and i love what i do but it's not it's not how i'm defined um, I'd like to think I'm defined in plenty of other ways. I enjoy what I do, but not enough to consume all of my time. I think this is a massive world. There's so much to see, so many people to see in it and so much to experience. I need time for that. Um, you know, my kids are all grown, almost all grown up. Um, they're productive members of society. Um, my youngest daughter Maggie's um, going into year 12, so I'm looking forward to seeing what part of life she tackles. It'll yeah, be a, yeah. a different pathway to mine. Um, which is great. Um, and my other two daughters, Jess, my oldest, and Em, um, my middle daughter, are all, um, you know, they're all productive members of society working and enjoying life. And they bought homes not far from dad, which I think is, they either love me a lot or they want me to turn up with a screwdriver or a hammer or something to <laughs> solve some of this.
0: Maybe a little bit of fun, challenges. right?
1: Yeah. Um yeah, I think that, that, that'd be the main feature. Like, I'm, you know, As I get older, I realise that um, material possessions are great and I do like my technology and I love my fast cars, but that's all a bit of window dressing, to be honest with you. I, bit, I realise ultimately that you're not the person that puts a value on your material possessions because someone else will do that for you at the end of yeah. life. Um, but, but the friendships, you can't put a value on them. The relationship with your family... I could care less about how much money I have or don't have, you know, obviously enough to live, but, you know, it's more about the relationship with my family, my children, my friends. It means much more to me than any of that stuff. And that might sound a bit cliche, but it's genuine because, you know, they're the things that you can't buy. You can't buy friendships, you can't buy family, and you, you can't buy love. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty chilled in that regard. I've become yeah. chilled, I think I'll be more chilled as I get older. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah about marriage so how does one get a
1: happy marriage um i think you know it's all about balance and i think you've got to value it you know i think yeah you can work hard but you've you know i'll give an example we leave here my wife works this building actually um yeah 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 on the 30th floor so she would argue 30th on the ninth floor the positional hierarchy is (laughs) fine i'm on the ninth floor she's on the 30th but um we go we leave here quarter past five every night we cook dinner together yeah. um you know it's it's you know the the time if i can unless i've got a function or something or i'm overseas but that's something we try and do so spending time together is really critical the little stuff you do for each other the tokens whether you make each other cups of tea yeah. not forgetting that life is fun and, and loves fun and romance is an important part of that so date night's a pretty important yeah, part of that, that stuff
0: key. what's your ideal date night
1: uh, <laughs> Uh, listen I think we love you know good we love great food great night out um, I'm, I tend to get older tend to like less noise yeah. <laughs> so it might be the concert these days um, although you wouldn't notice that listening to my car um, you know I think um, a great night out is just spending time together and just talking and having a genuine chat you know genuine talk about us about our family um, I think we tell her we love it we love each other every day um, you know it's sort of just... It's a very, it just feels very natural. Um, It's never never forced. Of course, you know, there are challenges from time to time, but that's life and none of them are, you know, I worked out a long time ago with her, none of them are fatal. I haven't got any fatal flaws, but, um, you know, I think for me a a perfect night is when you get time to have a genuine chat and you've enjoyed each other's company and, you know, if you've had some good food and good wine in the middle of that, great. Um, And she'd say good chocolate, but... um,
0: (laughs) Awesome. And the final question is, what is an ideal day in the life for you? It can be work-related, non-work-related. Yeah. Firstly, oh. probably mountain biking at
1: the beginning. I, it, I think for Anne and I, it starts with exercise in some yeah. form. Um, and again, she's more of an athlete than I am these days, but you know, I've got a few <laughs> injuries to carry. Um, you know, I think um, I think Bricky, reading the papers, catching up on what's happening in the world. I think um, if it's work-related, then having a day where I'm meeting clients. I, I love... I love meeting clients, having a day where I'm interacting with the team. If you want to stifle me, put me in front of a bunch of computer-based training for a day and that'll kill me. Um, <laughs> if you want to excite me, put me in front of a group of people, talking to our, our grads, talking to clients, um, working with the team on a crunchy problem. Yeah. If it's in the work context, um, not finishing late would be a yeah. great day. Yeah. Um, interacting with my overseas colleagues is always good fun because they bring fresh cultural and ideas and perspective. Um, some sort of partner lunch would be nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's not bad at times. Yeah. Um, I've got friends at work. You know, I remember there was a question once at SunCorp about culture. And I said, "Do you have a best friend at work?" And I absolutely do. So when I just, um, I love that. You know, so coming to work's not a chore for me. I don't wake up. There's not any morning I wake up and go, oh, "My God, I've got to go to work." I don't feel like that. It doesn't feel like that for me. I, I enjoy being here. Um, but. Given the choice, yeah, I'd be doing other things. You know, An ideal day would be out mountain biking for the first three hours down in Derby in Tasmania, <laughs> you know, on, on a private and you know, having taken my private jet down there because then I can get down there quicker. Um, um, but it, 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 most of any of that would, yeah, okay, I kind of like time by myself. But I think ultimately, any day that I have that I enjoy is being with people, and it's been fun. It's been doing something fun. Um, you know, and my, most of my friends would say that it would probably involve food. That's probably yeah. true. But it would probably also involve some something active. Um, and, um, you know, that's why I'm still doing the stuff I do. You know, I, last year I went to Bathurst um, to watch that. I went to Derby in Tasmania. I went shark diving. Um, we've been to India, London. You know, I sort of had a... I had a reasonable year this year. I think I think I want to add to that I you mean know, coming years. I want to do parts of the Tour de France. Oh, I want to spend three months in, you know, riding in, um, I am, I'd hate that, um, <laughs> riding in Spain. Um, and just doing Machu Picchu and, you know, um, going to New Zealand shortly. You know, I just think enjoying the world and what it represents, what it has to offer. And that's all the people and cultures. It's not the things, you know. Yeah. If you want to kill me, take me to a museum. me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well Jonathan, I love listening to your story and what a crazy adventure.
1: Thanks for being patient enough to have me on your uh, on your channel.
0: It's awesome. I just wish we had more time. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Thank well you. Wait by the podcast. Thanks bye. you Tom.
1: See you mate.